This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Quentin Tarantino is on the line for this edition of The Literary Life. His first novel has just been published. It's a novelization of his film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But don't be fooled. In true Tarantino fashion, he has redefined a genre, given us an homage to those books once found in newsstands and drugstores, and in the words of the Washington Post, this first novel may even herald the start of a new direction for this relentlessly inventive director. Thanks for uh, moving it back. Oh, I really appreciate it. I hope I'm not calling too late. Not at all, Quinn. In fact, I'm glad that I almost didn't quite make it on time either. So thank you, though, for hanging in there with us. Um, oh, my pleasure. I am really honored that you are, you know, that you're on this podcast and that, you know, you're you're here with me. I'm a huge fan, <laughs> as you might imagine. Oh, thank you very much. It sounds yes. like it's going to be a very exciting conversation. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, you know, initially, like anything, I initially thought, well, you know, what could this be? I love everything you did with it. I love the ads. I love the old ads. Well, I, I that I, was that was so important. We're like, okay, look, the books of like 1978 all had like, you know, four pages of ads. We got to do that. <laughs> they really, really did. And then... What you've created is something which stands in and of itself apart from the film. So, you know, you basically, you know, it, it made me go back and watch the film again, you know, and I, it's like two different works of art. I just can't tell you how, how remarkable it is. And I have to say, you know, I'm, you know, in this book, bookstore world buzz of the indie bookstores and Basically, everybody is reading this book now. I think it's a number one bestseller in one day, uh-huh. and you should feel very proud of that. I've had people texting me. You know, one guy trying to be a jokester said, "You know, I just love this thing. I, I bought it yesterday. I read it. It would make a great film." <laughs> <laughs> that's a funny guy. <laughs> oh, well, I, was, I mean, no, that's actually kind of exciting. You run a bookstore, and then and you you can feel that there's excitement for uh, th- that book, and people have been asking about it. That's really cool. Oh, uh, Quinn, we just reordered hundreds of copies more <laughs> because of the just because of you know the the interest and what's happening. Fucking awesome, man! I'm, I'm, this is news to me. I mean, I know it's doing good, but but. I haven't heard any, you know, I used to work at a video store, so I know what it's like when it's like a big video drops and stuff and people were yeah. wanted it. That's really exciting. I know that it's always hard to hear these things, but there's someone who called you one of the, the most influential, you know, filmmakers of your generation. But to me, you basically turned on an entire generation 
to things that interest you. Unfortunately, the things that interest you are really interesting. So talk a little bit about that. Talk a little bit about just how you've gone down these rabbit holes of things that you've loved, you know, of influences that you had, and you you kind of, like, you transform them into something new. Well, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's funny, because, I mean, you can definitely make the case I'm doing that with <laughs> the moving novelization to some degree, where um, I've taken these different, in the movie world, I've taken these different genres and subgenres that oftentimes, you know, treated with that much respect from like you know the first string critics of, of the big newspapers you know whether it be uh you know hong kong kung fu movies or uh, uh yeah just you know all the different weird little subgenres, like a bunch of men on my mission movies spaghetti westerns that kind of stuff but i always i always loved him and uh, uh or black exploitation movies i always loved those and i wanted to do my versions of them but now but i really wanted to do my versions of them where i took what I, what I considered the pleasures of those genres, because I didn't want to do an art film meditation on a black exploitation movie. I wanted right. to deliver the goods. For people who like black exploitation movies, they, I hope you'll like Jackie Brown. And uh, I want to take the flavor of it and the, uh, the, the joys that, I, that, I, that I, I find inherent in the genre. But then I want to add my spin and hopefully you know, elevated a little bit. Now, some of them, some of those movies that exist don't need elevation. They're, they're actually good on their own. But I'm trying to aim for a, a, a slightly higher and definitely slightly more idiosyncratic view of the given genre without losing the pleasures inherent in there. And I think you've succeeded. And you're right that you've succeeded in the movie tie-in. I, I, I predict that in about two or three years, we're going to have about a thousand movie tie-ins that people are going to try. <laughs> But I don't think anyone can really quite succeed like this. I mean, the uh, reviews have been... Thank you very the, much. The reviews have been spectacular. I mean, I, New York Times, I, Washington I Post. I was surprised by that. I thought they were going to be really snotty to me and everything. So it was like when I read that first New York Times review, I go, oh, this, this almost sounds like a rave. And the editor goes, oh, it's a rave. <laughs> it is a rave. I mean, I love... I mean, Dwight Gardner pulled out all the stops when he says, if it were written better... It'd be written worse, yeah, right. <laughs> which, which I love. Yeah, it's a mass, it's a mass market paperback that reeks of mass market paperbacks. I love that. I mean, it's exactly what you were seems like what you were what you were shooting for. What led me to it was the fact that look, uh, uh, you were saying that like as a bookseller, you never really took a, a, a movie novelization seriously, but. Me growing up in the 70s, you know, being a, a, a little boy and, be, and becoming, a, a, you know, a teenager and a young man at, at the end of the 70s, movie novelizations were probably like the first adult books I ever read. Wow. Maybe like, you know, my mom or one of my mom's roommates, like, you know, had some like cop book or something, you know, that right. they were reading. And then I, I picked it up off of the coffee table and started reading it myself. But when it came to actually me going to like a 7-Eleven and going through the spinner rack, uh, of the paperback, it was like novelizations that I first started reading, and, and they were they were my first adult book, and I read a lot of them. I read novelizations for movies I never ended up seeing. <laughs> so they were very they were really fresh for you at that time. Yeah, they were you know? they they were really interesting. And then as time went on, I really realized that there was like a, a vast difference in them. I mean, yes, there were the. Um, there were the ones that were like probably five or six day jobs where they just basically took the screenplay and, and then broke it down into prose form. The, those 
those definitely existed. Um, you know, but there was also some like really terrific novelists that really the only really uh, lucrative gigs they could get were novelizations, and they really poured their heart and soul into some of them. And almost invariably, all of their novelizations were better than the movies that uh, <laughs> uh, that they were based on. And then there's also a shitload of novelizations that were done by the original screenwriter. My favorite uh, author of novelizations is uh, this fellow named John Minahan. Now, John Minahan had a whole series of crime novels called, like, The Great Robberies. It's like The Great Hotel Robbery, The Great right. uh, Diamond Robbery, The Great Wall Street Robbery, thing, The Great Hotel Robbery, things like that. I read, like, one of them. I can't quite get through it. I, I don't love it that much. But his novelizations are just terrific. And I don't think he just did anything that came out there. He had a tendency to pick movies that I think that he thought would make good books. And so he did the, the novelization to mass. He did the novelization oh. of William Freakin' Sorcerer. He did uh, uh, his best novelization, I think, is is from the Richard uh, uh, James Bridges movie, uh, September 3055. Uh, it's called 93055, the book. Right, right. Um, he did the, the Steve Tesh, uh, Peter Yates movie, Eyewitness, and he completely did it better than the movie. But the thing about it, one of the things he did that was when he was just a really terrific writer, but one of the things he did was he almost always, did his uh, novels from a first-person perspective. Mm. And so wow. take any movie you can think of and then just rewrite the story from a first-person perspective. Well, you've changed it drastically by just doing that. Were you also interested, I'm sure you were, in wonderful films that were adapted from wonderful books? Um, you know, I can think of, you know, a favorite of mine, you know, Lee Marvin's Point Blank. Oh yeah, that yeah, was, uh -huh. you know, from, oh, the, yeah, hunter. from the hunter. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Did you find yourself reading those as well? Oh yeah, no. I discovered uh, the Parker series in the '80s, and it was uh, a complete revelation because you know we were living through the '80s, which was like this incredibly <laughs> politically correct decade. And one of the things after coming off of the '70s, where characters, you. Know, they could be fucked up, all right? They didn't have to be heroes. They, you know, Travis Bickle is not a hero. Joe, right. Peter Bowles, Joe is not a hero. Oh, but there's, like, there's interesting fucked up characters, and the, and the movies you know, were about those characters. But all of a sudden, in the 80s, it all changed. And like every lead character had to be likable. And likability was everything. And even if they had a, sense, uh, you know, a, a, a different kind of iconoclastic sense about them, uh, in the first hour, the last half hour was going to change that. Yeah, it's they true. Had, they had to be redeemed. Well, in that antiseptic decade, I discovered Parker. Right. You know, he is just a professional robber, and that is just what he is. And, and you know, he's, he's all about the profession of his trade. And, you know, he's not a cold-blooded killer. I mean, one, because that would be unprofessional. But, you know, if, uh, like, in uh, Point Blank, if he gags the secretary when he's robbing the office building and she ends up suffocating, well, that's too bad. But I, you know, those, <laughs> them the breaks. <laughs> well, you know, we share we share a love for Dutch Leonard, Elmore Leonard yes. stuff, and I think he falls into that category as well. Mm. Someone writing in the eighties, uh, you know, like he wrote one of the great Absolutely. books about Miami called La Brava. I don't know if yeah. you know that book, but Absolutely he can't. He falls into that, and like you, yeah. and you. And, and, the, and in some ways, almost the more fucked up his characters are, the more you love them. Absolutely. And his his detail with dialogue, I know that only from his Miami books, mm -hmm. because he would say something like, all right, 
don't take that road. Take the other bridge. It's faster. <laughs> you know, he knew he had such detail that way. Oh, but, yeah. Same thing with this Detroit book. Okay, go to the party yeah. store and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, you know, those guys... Pop as opposed to soda. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, you're absolutely right. In the 80s, they were not what we think of them today. You know, in the 80s, they were a little bit... They were a little bit unheralded, pretty much, in the 80s. I remember we did an event with Elmore Leonard at the store, and he was talking about how hard it was. One day, he wrote a novel. He didn't know who to turn it into. So he called his publisher up and said, Hi, this is Elmore Leonard. Can you tell me who my editor is? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, when, and when they couldn't tell him, he said, It's time for me to change publishers at that point. <laughs> I have to tell you, it was a real thrill. Uh, uh, my proofreader, uh, Kathy, ended up being, ended up that she was Elmer Leonard's proofreader on uh, Rumble. Wow. Punch. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. That's, now, he was, he was such an original. And there's another person who was friendly with him, and he's from Miami, and that's Charlie Williford. Oh, yeah, I, I, I figured you were going to say yeah. uh, Williford. But especially the Hope Mosley novels. Completely. The Hope Mosley novels are masterpieces. You would have loved Charlie. He was really one of the sweetest, most interesting guys around. I would say of all the series of books I've read, they were the ones where I couldn't wait to see what was happening to the supporting characters in the next book. Great. You know, his, his, his Latina partner, what was going on with her, what was going on yeah. with his two teenage daughters. I was always really curious about the uh, the supporting characters. And they've always had, usually had like, you know, big leaps in their life by the time they, he picked up the next book. Right. But let's talk about you as a reader. I mean, everyone knows you as a filmmaker. You know, I remember as a kid, I couldn't get enough of, you know, the Red Balloon, Curious George, and then I... I went into the Hardy Boys. Books always meant something to me. Did you grow up in a house where books meant something? Really? Yeah, well, I mean, like, you know, it was interesting growing up in the in the late 60s or the early 70s because, you know, yeah, I'm not reading the, the big adult paperbacks or that are, like, uh, everybody's reading, but, like, I knew what they were. You know, I like, I, I knew that everyone was reading The Godfather. I knew that everyone was reading Love Story. I knew everyone was reading The Sensuous Man and The Sensuous Woman. Right, right. The first author I, I ever, I think I got turned on to, other than like reading something like Encyclopedia Brown or something like that. Right. Um, uh, was, um, I, I think I'm going to remember his name correctly. Uh, in, the, in the fifth grade, I had a really cool librarian that was, I had a nice little relationship with her. And she pointed me to uh, a, a children's author, I believe his name was Roy Delarousse. And he wrote a, a whole series of books. The first one that I remember, and you could look it up and find out if that's uh, his name. Uh, the first one I remember was a book called Three Dollar Mule. Mm. And she was really bragging about this writer. She thought he was really good. And I read the book, and I, I thought it was terrific. I thought it was a really good book. And, uh, and well, she, she was a fan. I think he had a bunch of books. And uh, so she had, you know, a whole mess of them in the library. So then I just started reading, like, one Roy Del Ruth book after another. And so that was actually, like, the first time I really got on to an author. And I really liked an author and, and started reading their stuff. And then, you know, then pretty quickly after that, I, I got out of, uh, like, YA novels. And then I think I just started, like, picking up, uh, uh, like, the 
a, a, a book that looked interesting that was on uh, uh, the coffee table that my mom had just read or uh, uh, one of her roommates had just read. Now, look, because I love movies, I was always attracted to a book that I thought would make a good movie. I'm sure. I'm sure you were. You were. You started writing screenplays really young, didn't you? Yeah, yeah I never you? finished anything, but I, I started trying yeah, to write. Right. So it's like, you know, so it's like a book about cops. All right, right. Would, would be as attracted to me or like a serial killer is doing of something course. and there's a cop after him. You know, those were the kind of like books that I was drawn to because I would like make the movie in my mind as I was reading. it. Did you go through your science fiction period? You know, I did, but half-heartedly, frankly, to tell you the truth, right. because I was uh, uh, I wanted to like science fiction more than I, I did. Uh, but I did go through a little bit of it. Uh, uh, I read one Robert Heinlein novel. <laughs> Right, right. I bought Stranger in a Strange Land, but I can never get through it. But you, you did go through your comics period, right? So oh, no, no, that, that, that's different. No, I, I, I've been reading comic books and collecting comic books for, you know, uh, uh, for, for a very, very, very long time. And so, but instead, so instead of going through a, um, a science fiction period when that didn't quite work out for me, uh, I went more through a horror novel period. Uh, so Stephen King... And, and yeah, I read. Uh, 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 I didn't read as much Stephen King as, as a lot of other kids uh, might, but I, I definitely read. A, uh, I, I definitely read some. I read. Uh, uh, I remember reading Cujo in particular. I, I was a real. I was a real fan of, of Cujo. But I made it a point again trying to pick books that. Um, that could uh, be a film. Yeah, that could be a film that hadn't been made into a film, and then it wasn't the biggest deal out there. Like I didn't read Audrey Rose. Right, everyone else right. was reading Audrey Rose. Right, right. Or V.C. Andrews, right? Yeah, I didn't read that because everyone was reading that. I wanted, to, right. I wanted to find my own. Is there a, like a secret book out there that you think about, wow, this would make a great film? But... No, there's, you know, there's a few. There's definitely a few. I mean, like, look, one, if I just wanted to make a good movie, all right, uh, I mean, and I'm coming from a more, more of a place than just making a good movie. I, I, I like... You know, I like facing a blank page and, and, and filling it myself uh, um, and knowing that there was a time, even when the movie's way finished, that, you know, oh, wow, there was a time when it was just a, a blank notebook. And, uh, you know, I, I put the first word on, on paper. I, I like knowing that that's the origin of it all. But if that wasn't the case, a book that I, I think about often about how good a movie would be and I kind of know how to do it would be David Morell's original novel for First Blood. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. Now, they made it into a movie, and it's just an entertaining enough movie, but right. it doesn't hold a flickering birthday candle compared to the book. Right, right, right. I mean, forget about the fact that they throw away the whole point of the book in the movie when Rambo doesn't kill the posse who's coming out. <laughs> right. Because the whole right, point right. of the book is that, well, if you take some guy and turn him into a killing machine and drop him behind enemy lines, well, that's all well and good, but at some point you got to put him back into society. Completely, completely, yes. Yeah, it's so, almost like the same. It's almost the same storyline of Roman Gary's White Dog. Um, right. But the thing about it, though, is you know the sheriff character is so fantastic in the book, and the Rambo character and the arguments he has with himself are so fantastic. It's one of those books that the dialogue is so great you almost cannot not read it out loud. And in essence, in some ways, once upon a time in Hollywood, this novel is kind of the reverse. You yeah. had your film. And now you're able to sort of add things to the characters that you might have thought about doing but didn't do in the film. Yeah, well, it, like, well it, it just ended up being especially a thing on, on this 
on this script is I wasn't in any hurry to write it. So I, I, I tinkered with it for about six years or so. And part of the way I tinkered with it, part of the way I learned about the characters was writing them out, writing out scenes. Not necessarily scenes for the movie I was going to do, but just scenes that like, you know, gave me edification on the character and who they were and, and like, the, the, you know, Rick's career and stuff like that. Right. And so I learned all this stuff. But, you know, uh, like you read the book. Okay, so there's this, uh, yeah. the chapter towards the end when uh, Rick and the other actor, James Stacy, go to the bar and just kind of shoot uh-huh. shit after shooting their, their episode right. uh, of the day. Well, I wrote that. I wrote that down at, at some point. But I never even bothered to type that up. I mean, there's no way that's going to be in the movie. The movie's not going to hold a 40-minute scene where just two characters <laughs> shoot the shit in the third act. And the other thing you were able to do in the book, which I appreciated, was you were able to play with genres. You gave big chunks of different, you know, stylistic things that you probably couldn't do in the film that you were able to do in the book as well. Yeah, I wanted to do that in the movie, but it didn't survive. <laughs> it ended up getting cut out. I, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind if it was six or seven hours to watch yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. I had a lot of fun, you know, uh, writing the, like the couple of Lancer chapters where it just becomes like an Elmer Leonard Western or a Louis L'Amour Western. Right. As a matter of fact, when I was like uh, uh, meeting different editors about who to publish the book, uh, I asked one of the editors, I go, well, what did you think of the Lancer chapters? And she goes, oh, I like them. She goes, arguably they're the, the best written chapters in the book because you're not trying to sound like you. <laughs> you're right. I'm not trying to sound like me. I'm trying to sound like uh, Max Brand. <laughs> that's, that's really funny. You've hit it out of the ballpark with this. So does this whet your appetite? I know that, you know, I don't know how the media picks up on these things, but there's that thing going around that you're going to do only one more film. And, they, you know, who really knows, right? None of us really know what the future is. But do you think you might do some more fiction? Is that something oh, no, that... No, no, I, I, I absolutely in, in, intend to. I mean, I, I definitely got another book coming out. I'm writing a book on... Um, uh, a cinema book, you know, a nonfiction book of uh, essays and like kind of like reviews of films of the seventies. Uh, it's coming out this fall. Yeah, it's like oh, I'm not I'm not quite done with it yet, but I'm I'm getting that right. first draft. It's getting down there. Cool, cool. Well, I would love for you to be writing more fiction. It's really, really good. I really appreciate that. I've I've got two chapters of of an original story going. I don't it's very pulpy though, but I got to finish my cinema book before I can get back to it. Yeah, tell me, tell me about, you know, you've had so many changes. I mean, all the whole world has gone through changes this yeah. last year. But you started going through you, all these changes prior to the pandemic, right? I mean, yeah, like you got married, before, you, yeah. moved, you moved to Israel, of all places, right? Yeah, I got married, and, and like, we didn't mean to just move to Israel, and that's it. My wife is Israeli, so the idea is, you know, we spend three months or four months in, in Tel Aviv, and then come here and spend three to four months in, in Los Angeles. And, and then I did something that took me somewhere else. We'd go somewhere else. But then my wife got pregnant. She, she had the baby. And uh, like a month later, the pandemic hit. <laughs> we got stuck in Israel for like nine months. And then what was that like for you? I mean, it must have been, in some ways, kind of cool. You were able to write and you were able yeah, to Yeah, no, I mean, like, frankly. And time like, with your so- family. Yeah, look, I, I was planning on being home most of this year anyway because I was like, you know, I, I just had a son. Right, right. Yes, yeah, so I wanted to be around him, you know. I wanted to, you know, spend that time at the house. And, and I was finishing up the second half of my novel. So, uh, you know, so it all worked out great for me, you know. Uh, um, 
it would have been nice to go back and forth a little bit more than we did. But I mean, how much are you going to go back and forth with a kid during the first year anyway? No, exactly. And Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv is quite a city, right? I yeah, mean, it's, it's, it's a great city. It's it's so exciting. And, you know, it's very similar to Los Angeles. It's just where Los Angeles is huge, Tel Aviv is tiny. Right, right. It does have its distinct neighborhoods. Yeah. And you can actually walk to all of them. That's the biggest thing is like, you know, yeah. I, I, I barely feel like we even need to lock the door. It seems so safe compared to America. <laughs> So will you go back? I mean, you you came for the publication, but you'll be going back to Israel. At this point? Yeah, well, like I'm I'm, I'm probably going I'm probably gonna go back in August, and then and then in September I'll be going to Europe uh, to promote the book because then the hardback will be coming out. But then me and my wife and my son will will come back will come out to Los Angeles after that that European part is over, and then we'll probably be here for like a, you know six or seven months. Cool. That's 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 really really great and so what are you reading now i read a cinema book that i really really like i mentioned that uh, uh that director james bridges the guy who did um, right. Paper chase and everything i uh, made a, a critical book about his about his film called the films of james bridges that was really really good i really really enjoyed it uh right now i'm i'm reading one of michael Crichton's first books when he was writing under the pseudonym john lang because he was right. uh, a medical student and he, he had these ideas for uh novels that he wanted to write them but he didn't want to put publish them under his own name because he thought that if his professors in medical school saw that he was writing books they would think he wasn't serious he wrote a book called binary that that was actually his first movie he ever made he made it as a tv movie in the 70s uh with ben gazara called pursuit and i always remember that movie and i thought it was cool and then a hard crime or whatever that that new uh, uh hard case hard, hard case. case hard case came out with right. a uh, um uh, a, a new edition of it and it's a lot of fun okay yeah no i have read a book that i really really liked and it was another hard case book it's a book called nobody's angel it's about a, a um a chicago cab driver and then there's this uh serial killer out there uh, uh who's killing cab drivers and he thinks he's maybe seen the car that might be doing the job and it's written by um by a, a cab driver in chicago wow and uh, he's not really a professional author. Uh, I think it was a big deal that this book got published. He wrote this book, and I think maybe another one, and he would just give it out to, to customers. It's a terrific character study, and you know you're hearing the straight dope from the cab driver. It's just filled with all these anecdotes. And, and the way Cabrini Green like is like this place that the cab drivers don't go, it's almost like, like this negative mecca, you know, right in the middle right. of the city. right. Remind me of the title again. What is the title? Uh, Nobody's Angel. Nobody's Angel. That's great. I'm gonna we're gonna have to get it and put it right by the counter there. I think <laughs> that sounds really right next to yours. That's yeah, put it, yeah, Quentin Tarantino recommends. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds fantastic. Um, do you remember the old Black Lizard books? The oh, old, of um, you. yeah. You know the ones that uh, uh, Sonny Mehta from Kanaf published. Uh, yeah, no, I, 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 I have a, bu I have a bunch of the, uh, 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 the, the old Black Lizard books. I mean, uh, there was a, a period of time that, you know, I almost picked up any Black Lizard novel uh, that came out just because, oh, well, this is like the legitimate pulp stuff, man. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I discovered Jim Thompson for the first time yeah. through 
Jews or, you know, all of that stuff. And what was so interesting is that Sonny Mehta, who was of Kanaf, which is one of the most, as you know, elevated publishers around. He just loved all that pulp stuff as well, which, which you know, as you've done, kind of blurs the whole low and high art. I oh, love, yeah, man. Which I love about your work completely. Oh, thank you. Which, well, there was a neat quote that uh, I think Kingsley Amos said when uh, when he wrote that James Bond novel, uh, Colonel Sun. Right. Uh, and he said that, um, talking about the Ian Fleming books of James Bond, he goes, look, I'm here to tell you, uh, uh, as a professional author, anybody who writes books that this many people want to read, I'm interested in. <laughs> the whole great. thing is to get people to want to read your book when that many people want to read it. Uh, that's a that's a thing. <laughs> I think you know, Curie is far more eloquent than I am about the way he said it. But that was that was, that was definitely the jest. Going down a different track, you know, one of the things I loved in Reservoir Dogs was the whole beginning part of it with uh, Stephen Wright and all the music yeah. and the soundtracks. And soundtracks and music is so much a part of who you are and what you do. Have you ever thought about kind of trying to compose or get involved in the writing of music as well? Not really. That's, it's, it's, it's just not my thing. I like being an aficionado. I like being a curator. Yeah. But, uh, um, and I, I've had some friends that are actually really like terrific producers and, and, and stuff. And if I really wanted to, they could show me how to operate the, the knobs on the board and stuff. But I kind of like being an arm's distance from it a little bit. You talk about being a curator. Spotify just came out with like 50 hours of music from the James Baldwin estate. It was all the albums that he had when he died. And so you can actually get the entire playlist. I mean, I, for one, would love a, a Quentin Tarantino lifetime playlist of everything. Well, well actually, one of the that reasons is, that I was like, uh, uh, we had to move this back a little bit is because like, I went and did a couple of shows at the Cirrus XM. Yeah, they wanted me to pick some songs. I go, well, can I just bring some records over? And then and they go, yeah, sure, go ahead. And and then they go, well, we could do No, let's play my record. So you hear it from my turntable. And, well, not my turntable, but my actual record. You know, go, okay, sure, well, give us a little time. We got to hook it up. But we did it. It made it a really fun show. It was fun to, like, you know, give my little spiel and then, like, put the needle on the record and boom. It was, it was a lot of fun. When is that going to air? Do we know? Yeah. I think it probably it should probably air like sometime in the next like I guess five days. Can you give us a hint of some of the people you played? The pretext I used was um, songs from my soundtrack collection, where there was like a really good song buried on a, a soundtrack that you, like no one would know unless they you know had that soundtrack album. I still have a bunch of albums that, like, I bought simply because it had one cool song that would be good to put on a mixtape or something. Oh, that's great. You still have mixtapes. Well, do... I still make mixtapes. I, I can't really give them to anybody because no one has a tape player anymore, but I still have a tape player <laughs> in my car, so I'll make mixtapes for myself. <laughs> oh, that is great. Yeah, I'm old enough that I remember 8-track. I remember them. I, didn't, I, I, I had them. My mom had a few of them, though. You know, music is so much part of all of our lives. And what you do through your curation and through your references is that you're teaching your audience as well. Mm -hmm. No, that's very true. And it's very gratifying because uh, we had a book signing just the other day. And um, and there was all these, like, you know, people between uh, um, 30 to 19. 
and they were coming up to me and, and they were just saying, you helped turn me on to movies. It was like seeing right. this movie you did or that movie you did. And that's gratifying enough. But the idea that, well, like after I saw your movie, then I was really interested in you. And then I, I listened to you give interviews and you talked about this director or that director or this genre or that subgenre or this movie or that movie. So then I went out and, and made a list and went and started, started seeing those movies. I sent them on a whole journey and, and, and just all these young people just kept saying that like again and again and again as they came up with their book for me to sign. And it was like, yeah, I mean, it was, it was very moving and, 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 and immensely gratifying. What a great legacy, right? It was pretty wonderful. Yeah, no, it, you should, you should feel, I mean, the excitement around your work and the excitement around this book, you should feel lots of gratification. Oh, that's a really nice, that's really, I, I, I do feel that, but it, it's really nice that you say that. Thank you. I can't have an interview as a bookseller without asking you about any, you know, you had the great scene in the, you know, in the bookstore. What is your attitude? What is, what is your feeling about bookstores? And are there any that you remember and that were influential? And There's so many that I remember, if I could... Uh, if I had the money then I have now, I'd go back just before they close and buy their store. <laughs> so <I have> <laughs> open. Um, right. uh, coming from the South Bay area of uh, Los Angeles, around the Hermosa Beach area, there was this really magnificent bookstore called um, uh, Either Or Books. And it was about like three stores. I think they bought three stores and just knocked down the walls and uh, made this one big, long store right where you could see the beach from the store. And, uh, and it had new books and used books uh, all kind of mixed up together. It was terrific. It was just, uh, it, was, it, was an, uh, it was an amazing store. And, and uh, um, you know, there was a time where like my first girlfriend was just really lovely, lovely woman. And, and you know, she was going for her, you know, I was a high school dropout and she was going for her professorship in English literature. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we would go to that bookstore when she was going to Santa Cruz College. You know, there was all these, like, great bookstores in, right. in that town. And then we would just go and buy about, like, six books or seven books and then come home. And then, like, you know, for the next three days, that's what we did. That's great. There was that, there's that great bookshop that you probably went to. It was called Bookshop Santa Cruz, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, I'm sure that's the one I was at. I'm sure that's right, the one I'm referring right to. Right yeah. downtown, yeah. Yeah, they had yeah. Yeah, they had a they had a, a really magnificent bookstore, and they had like a, a couple really magnificent used record stores that were just that we we loved. And there was that great revival house, the old Sash Mill that we were seeing you know, old movies at, that was just fantastic. And uh, where uh, um, where I used to live in uh, um, Greenwich Village, right off of uh, Greenwich Avenue, there was a little tiny bookstore for just mystery books. It was called I think Mystery Press or something like that. Yeah, and it was just a little bookstore for mystery fiction and crime fiction. Right. I think it became the mysterious press. Yeah, I think it did. I think it did, yeah. Well. It broke my heart about, like, I guess six years ago when I went down there and, like, it wasn't there anymore. Yeah, I know. We've lost a lot of great indie bookstores. Yeah. But the good news, there are a lot that are kind of making another surge. A lot of younger people are mm -hmm. coming in and opening up stores. That well, I was very gratified when I saw the... Uh, um, you know, the sales list, what they were ordering from HarperCollins as far as the book was concerned. And I expected the number to be big on Amazon or something like that. But I was really, I was, I was really gratified when it comes to the independent mom-and-pop bookstores. That, that was a, it was a nice number there. You were talking about going to used record stores and bookstores. There's something to be said for the analog world. I'm definitely a champion <laughs> of the analog world. <laughs> 
You know, the other thing that, that you do so well, too, is that you acknowledge the past. You acknowledge people like Bruce Dern, yeah. David Carradine, Burt Reynolds. There is an aspect to the book that, you know, maybe a third of the book that I've managed to turn into narrative is just a, a lot of old stories that those guys told me. All Hollywood stories that I was able to kind of twist and turn and make it a Rick Dalton story, or just make it a you know right. a reflection of a reflection of the industry. But they were literally just like you know great because these guys are just magnificent raconteurs and and just the old stories about uh, this actor or that actor or this person or that person or this situation or that situation is just you know the book is just filled with that and that's you know uh, so I'm really paying them a debt because without them the authenticity of the book wouldn't be there. Have you ever been to Miami? Do you ever spend time uh, here? Once. I only was in Miami once, actually. It was, uh, uh, I did a movie, I produced a movie that was shot there, and so they had the big premiere, and then they were, and the guys were from Miami. They go, you gotta come on down. So I went down, and I, I had a fucking ball, and I've never been back again, but I had a ball. But you guys, you should come. Your family would love it. You know, you, you know, particularly when your son gets a little older, you can take him to the beach. It's really, it's kind of a kick down here. No, I would, I would, uh, uh, you're just saying that, uh, and I believe you. I think that, that would, that would be a lot of fun. Maybe, in, maybe in a, a, a couple of years, we'll do like a, a real, uh, like a real trip. Do you have an idea of what's next? Do you know what's next? Do you think you're going to uh, write? Yeah, more? Just, the, uh, 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 just the cinema book. That's what I'm working on right now. You're doing the cinema book, and there was some talk of a play as well. Yeah, that's that. That that'll probably be. Uh, I've already written it, so that'll probably be uh, uh, what I'll start exploring to do after I finish the cinema book. Yeah, what my my book is about. You know, I think the '70s is the greatest decade of American movies ever. You know, and that's me coming of age. That's to me, that's a movie. Yeah, that's absolutely. when I first learned movies were. That's what I saw like week after week after week. I write about Bullet, I write about Getaway, I write about Love Story, I write about The Outfit, um, I write about another Donald Westlake uh, movie, Hops and Robbers, I write about that, The Last Picture Show, Main Streets, uh, The Mac. Some of the Sam Peckinpah Rolling stuff? Th yeah, Rolling Thunder. The only Peckinpah I write about is The Getaway, but I deal with him uh, uh, big time. Uh, I deal with, uh, quite a bit with uh, Don Siegel, so like, I, I write about Dirty Harry, I write about The Shootist. Uh, yeah, the shootest, I remember. The shootest. Escape from Alcatraz. But, like, even when I, when I write about, like, Escape from Alcatraz, that gives me an excuse to write about all the prison movies that came out around that time. And then I get right. back again to Escape from Alcatraz. Right. Is there anything you've seen recently that you've loved? Not in the, not in that last year. I, I hardly saw anything in the last year because I just, like, refused to pay $20 to stream of movie, I don't know. Right. Um. <laughs> right. Well, here, let me ask you an off-the-wall question. Uh -huh. So in the industry, so much seems to be moving toward television, right? Yeah. Have you ever had any interest in doing a, a limited series or a series or anything like that? In the past, I could I could have done something like that. Like like when I first came up with um, Inglorious Bastards, I had this like big, grander idea and like, if it was an option to do a miniseries, I probably would have done it as a miniseries at that time. Right. Um, you have nothing for, philosophical against it, necessarily. No, 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 not necessarily, no. Um, when I wrote the script for um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, just for fun, because I, I watched so many of the 50s Western shows to like kind of really, I always liked them anyway, but just to indoctrinate myself into that world, 
I watched so many of them that just for fun, I wrote five episodes of Bounty Law. And so it's like, they're all like, you know, circa 1958, 59, and they're all about a half hour long, black and white shows. And uh, I I might end up doing uh, all all, all five episodes or like a couple more and, you know, it just, because they're cool, they're they're fun, they'd be pursuing. One of the things I was really drawn by, by watching stuff like Wanted Dead or Alive, or watching Tales of Wells Fargo, or watching uh, uh, The Rifleman, was these half-hour westerns, and the fact that, like, they pack so much story in that half hour that, you know, me, makes, you know, everything is like, you know, trying to be a big epic. I was so taken with the idea of telling this big, impactful story in 22 minutes. Right. Yeah, no, they would. They were always clever. And they were you dynamite, know, but, man. Yeah. You know, they, 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 they cut out all the middles of everything. It's just like right to the fucking action and right to the drama and right to the characters. It was, it was half the reason I, I wrote the thing was for the edification of it all, but the other was just to experiment with that type of storytelling. Oh, I hope you, I hope they, I, I hope it comes to fruition. I hope oh, somebody does it. You know, I grew up, when I grew up, I had the flip side of that. And, and they, you know, I had the bonanza side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where there, were, where there were, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of action always. They were, yeah, right. You know, there was a kind of, there was always some, some scurrilous thing going on, but they were trying to make some kind of ethical point, which was always sort of interesting. It was always on Sunday night, which made Yeah, yeah, sense. right, yeah. <laughs> well, well, the thing that always bug, bugged me about, like, Bonanza and a lot of those shows of, of that era is, like, Hoff would fall in love with some woman or Little Joe would fall in love with some woman and they'd end up dying at the end of the episode. And then they never brought them up again. <laughs> out of sight, out of mind, right? Yeah, I was just, I was like, well, he seemed like he was truly in love with her, and there should be the tragedy that informs the rest of his life, and she's, you know, she's never referred to, she's never brought up again, it's like, like, nothing that ever happens is ever brought up again. Right, that's very funny, that's, re- <laughs> that's really true, it's, yep, that is what happened, um, Man, I I so appreciate this, Quinn. Oh, it's and, my pleasure, man. This was, and, this was a very fun conversation. It's been great talking to you. You too, Quinn. My very best to you. <laughs>